Anyway, good morning. I always love that drop. And I also liked Rory's cat saying hello this morning. That was really nice. I am Pastor Mike. And before we get to today's message, I want to take some time for two quick strategic items. First of all, I want to celebrate Serve Tallahassee's Thanksgiving food drive, which was this past Saturday. Hold on. Let me give you a reason to applause. Over the course of the last month, we raised over $4,000, and we had countless donated food items that allowed us to hand out 100 turkeys to over 100, or sorry, to 190 families here in the Tallahassee area, as well as, yeah, there you go, now you can applaud. Which, for context, is 50 more families than we have ever served on a Saturday here at Serve Tallahassee. So... Awesome job, E3. I want to take a second also to recognize the volunteers who we have seen scroll. There's the line, by the way. Went all the way down past Game Street Pies, almost the Capitol Circle. It was crazy. But anyways, I want to shout out the Serve Tallahassee team who was able to help out this week. If y'all could stand up real quick, and I know they hate this, especially Denise. (laughs) Give them a round of applause. Thank you. Awesome, awesome job, E3 and the volunteers. It was a epic day. So thank you for your generosity as always. And that's actually a good segue into the second strategic item, which is that this month or coming month of December is going to be a service month here at E3. And what that means is that we are going to try over the first three Saturdays of this coming month to take on local service projects throughout the Tallahassee area. That's going to include an ability first ramp. We're going to serve a meal as a community at the Kearney Center and we are going to take part in a backpack drive for kids who rely on free and reduced lunch at schools. Um, basically, they fill those backpacks with food for the holidays because most of these kids only really get fed at least one of the key meals of the day at school. So it helps them get through the break. I want to see E3 step into this opportunity. We need between 10 and 15 volunteers for each of those things I just said, which means I need y'all's help. So later today on myE3.org, in the blurb section, if you go through the announcements, you're going to find a link to sign up for this event. You can pick any of those three options to volunteer for. And I just deeply urge you guys to do that as we get ready to head into this Christmas season. Amen? Amen. Amen. I appreciate y'all so much. But smooth transition to today's message, where I want to begin by talking about this idea of longing that yearning desire for something unrealized in your life or in your world. In particular, I want to talk about the longing that defined my childhood childhood growing up as a Boston sports fan in the 90s and early 2000s, which probably makes Chris Turner groan, but let me provide some context. First, I love it. First, Tallahassee had no professional teams. I loved the Boston punk scene. And underdog sports stories rule. And as a kid, that was enough for me. So if you don't like it, sue me. And second, you may wonder, if you follow sports, how could you possibly have experienced longing during the Patriots dynasty of the last 20 years? Well, fun fact, I'm probably the only Boston sports fan who doesn't root for the Patriots. And that's because during this formative time, I played peewee flag football on a team called the Buccaneers, which was actually coached by Charlie Vancher, who was playing guitar today. Is Charlie here? No, he's hiding. Charlie, was I good? (sighs) 
Yo, I picked the wrong career. I let my coach down. Yeah, not that, <laughs> not that good. Stick to your day job, right? But, all to say, but because of this, and really because of Charlie Vancher, I chose to support the Tampa Bay Buccaneers over the New England Patriots, which if you know anything about sports is a decision I regret more than any I have made in my entire life. <laughs> misery upon misery, y'all. All to say, as a fan of only the Boston Red Sox and Celtics, my childhood sports fandom was all longing. Both teams had these glory days that took place before I was born. Stories of past exaltation that was 100% different than the reality I experienced. Because again, if you follow sports, you know that during this time period, both teams were either terrible or were deeply committed to losing in the most heart-wrenching ways possible, <laughs> which created in me this incongruity between how things should be in terms of the stories that I had in my head and how they actually were. This longing to experience success that I only ever heard of. And luckily, if you followed sports the past 15 years, then you know I eventually tasted that sweet, sweet victory in droves. Go socks! But I begin here because this is truly, I believe, a universal human experience. Whether it's an idyllic childhood, personal pain, past era, hopeful future, we've all at some point in our lives felt that sense that something's just not right in ourselves, our lives, our world, and that longing for it to become so. And this longing sets our course today for this final week of Brie, our series exploring the major themes of the book of Psalms and its invitation to, through worship, bring before God our full human experience, our joy, sufferings, regrets, and everything in between. And that's because this experience of longing defines our last category of Psalms for this series, which are the eschatological Psalms. Who wants to say that? Say it with me, eschatological. I'm just kidding. There you go, A+. Plus. Now, I hear you. Eschatology is a big, scary, theological-sounding word. But it's central to the Bible and not as scary as you might think. It really just means reflecting or studying the end of God's story. Now, if you're new to the Bible, broadly speaking, God's story goes a little something like this. God made everything good and created humanity in his image to, in relationship with him, work alongside him to grow more life out of the good creation that he made according to his will and his good intentions. Question, do human beings trust and follow God's will and intentions for creation? Yes or no? No. In this event called the fall, we rebel. We elevate our wills above God's and try to impose our intentions on his world, turning earth into the space of competing wills, each person imposing themselves onto others or our planet for our own individual agendas. And how has that gone for us, good or bad? Horrible. <laughs> it breaks everything in the biblical story. And yet, throughout the Bible, there's this repeated promise over and over again that despite humanity's rebellion, 
God will not leave us or his good world to this fate. That one day he will make all things right again. And that's what eschatology is all about. This promised future renewal of God. And it's explored in many different ways throughout scripture, including through these eschatological psalms of longing. You see, in these Psalms, what we find is that the psalmists see our world's upheaval and experience that sense that something just isn't right in this place before they look forward to God's promised renewal at the end of their story and find something quite profound as they walk through this broken world. And I wanna just dive into my favorite of these Psalms, which is Psalm 46. It begins in verse one like this. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. So right off the bat, we're introduced to the Psalms' main theme, that God is a refuge, source of strength, and ever-present help for his people. In what, we ask? Well, apparently the end of the world because the psalmist shifts immediately to this metaphorical apocalyptic language of uncreation, of the very cosmos falling apart, of mountains toppling into these raging seas. And in particular today, I wanna sit with this imagery of chaotic seas or the chaotic waters because for an Israelite, the audience of this psalm, it was meant to bring to mind very specific ideas and stories from their Hebrew Bible. You see, today, we view the sea as conquered and accessible. We go on cruises for funsies, right? But in this time before modern naval equipment, that was not the case at all. If you get caught out in the deep ocean during a, let's say, a hurricane, or a sudden storm, whoo, boy. All you can do is pray because you were more likely than not doomed. Thus, you have to understand that in the poetic imaginations of ancient Israel, the sea isn't the symbol for fun. It's not for sunshine and rainbows and lazy Sundays at the beach. No, the sea in their imagination, when you read Hebrew poetry is the place of chaos and disorder, which shapes how this symbol gets used throughout the scriptures. Let me show you what I mean. The chaotic waters first appear in Genesis 1's creation account, the very first story of the Bible, which begins like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the what? The deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the what? The waters. And see, before creation, what we get is this image of empty nothingness, symbolized here by dark, chaotic waters. Or in Hebrew, the tahom. Say it with me, the tahom. The tahom is translated as the deep sea or the abyss, and it's a charged word in this culture. In ancient Near East cosmologies, the tahom was the symbol of the dangerous, primordial disorder that existed before creation. And it was very, very bad news. In Mesopotamian creation accounts, for example, the Tahome is considered so chaotic that even the gods fear it. 
because they think it could destroy even them. But in Genesis, does this God fear the Tahom, the chaotic waters? No, his spirit is hovering over them. And then what happens? Who knows the rest of the story? God speaks and the home stills. In other words, what we find in Genesis is that this God isn't threatened by the Tahom. No, he has mastery over them. With just a word, he stills their chaos, subduing and bringing order to them, which, as Genesis then goes on to tell us, from which he creates the stable environments for life and flourishing that defined our universe. And this image becomes so central to the biblical narrative. Who alone has the power to still the Tahom, the chaotic waters? The one true creator God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And what you see moving forward is that this Tahom imagery starts getting applied by so many biblical authors in this vast variety of ways. Most often, the Tahom imagery starts getting used to poetically depict our world's most chaotic elements and God's ability to save his people from them, which is what we see here, right? The psalmist uses it to describe this unspecified present threat to Israel, to God's people, and then to make this larger point that I think is profound, even when it feels like the very fabric of our world is falling into chaos, we can trust God's help and not be afraid. Why? Because he's the God who can subdue the home and he could subdue this chaos too. Powerful stuff, right? But there's another concept that we see in scripture that starts getting attached to this imagery, which we find appearing in this next section of Psalm 46. Start again in verse four. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy place where the most high dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You see, after Genesis, the Tahom also starts getting used to symbolically describe a very specific kind of danger created by the fall and God's ability to rescue and save his people from it. And that danger is the chaos and misery created by competing, warring human kingdoms in this world. For example, in Exodus, God frees his people from where? Egypt, before leading them to where? Oh no, first there's a water. The Red Sea, thank you guys. But then what happened? Pharaoh sends Egypt's tools of war after the Israelites who get trapped between Pharaoh's armies on one side and the Red Sea on the other until God says, be still, I will save you, which he does by doing what? Controlling the waters, subduing them, bringing them under his command, parting them so they can go through to the other side. And you'll see this throughout the Old Testament. When nations attack Israel or war begins to swirl around them from all these empires, it uses this to home imagery. And whenever God arrives to calm their chaos, 
to save Israel from their destruction, to free God's people from their bondage. Every single time that peace is gonna be described, this language of stilling the raging seas, stilling the Tahom. And then the prophets, this imagery gets picked up again, but now to point forward. See, repeatedly they adopt Tahom imagery to urge Israel to trust God and have hope even as Israel's story spirals out of control. And again, you ask why? And they say over and over again, it's because even then, even in the moment of their disaster, even then, the God who can still the Tahom is with them. He is with his people. And one day he will calm the chaotic waters as he promised. And it's that theme that the psalmist deploys here. If you notice, he uses this to home imagery of cosmic collapse for both this present threat and these warring nations that are just swirling around God's people. But notice, despite chaos tearing at creation, is the psalmist afraid? No. Instead, he describes this peaceful city of God, a reference to Jerusalem, the temple, with completely different imagery. There's water there, but it's not tumultuous or threatening. Now, in God's presence, it's a calm, peaceful river that brings life and provision, not destruction. And unlike the mountains, which are toppling, God's city will not fall, the psalmist says, because God is within it. The psalmist trusts that all will be well despite this world's chaos because he knows God is his people's refuge, fortress, strength, and help. And that God can subdue these chaotic human elements with just a word, a mirroring of that Genesis 1 story. Did you catch that? Kind of cool, right? I'm the only geeky one here. (laughs) And with that, having described this circumstance, he now turns to eschatology to close the psalm. You pick up in verse eight, come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to ends the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And y'all, this is one of my favorite texts really in the whole Bible. Having described the world's present chaos, the psalmist turns to God's promised future in a really profound way, inviting all to come and see the works of the Lord, which will bring desolation to the earth, which sounds terrifying, right? But notice, what desolation does the psalmist say that God will bring to the end of the earth at the end of his story? The end of war, the breaking and destruction of every single tool of violence on this earth. What? Yo, that sounds like good news. How is that desolation? Is anyone else wondering that right now? But that paradox is why I love this text. Who would see such works and acts of peace as horrifying desolation? Well, those who rule through violence and wield tools of might to get their way in the world, am I right? You see, what's good news for some 
The establishment of God's peace throughout the earth is terrible news for human kingdoms that wield power by uncreating peace. Because by necessity, they will have to go for God's peace to become a reality. Which the psalmist depicts, I think, beautifully. God speaks to the raging nations, be still. Or better translated, cease and desist, a call to combatants to stop their warring and pay attention. The imagery is almost like a parent separating two petulant, fighting children. Enough. God again speaks to subdue the Tahome, bringing order to the chaos created by human kingdoms. He just says, stop it. And what do they do? They stop. He's exalted. And these kingdoms are brought low as his will alone is established throughout the earth, leading all of humanity to acknowledge that he alone is God, the one who alone can calm the raging waters and make things right. That's the end of God's story that the psalmist longs for. It's that conclusion that allows him to proclaim the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, even the face of a seemingly crumbling world of prideful, warring, petulant children in the form of human nations. And y'all, that's wisdom, I think. Because what we see here is that he drags God's future peace into his experience of present chaos, and it changes everything. And y'all, I don't know about you, but when I look at the war in Ukraine, the polarization of American politics, the upheaval of the global economy, the disastrous impacts of empire, oppression, injustice, tribalism, genocide, you name it. When I look at our present world, I get the imagery of raging waters. Am I the only one? And when I get wrapped up in that chaos, it's so easy to drown in it, to feel like it's inching above my shoulders until it just consumes all of me. But these Psalms remind me that in such moments, I need to let God's story reframe my perspective. I think they remind us to zoom out. And this is very practical. We think that our present order and the chaos that it produces will exist forever. But y'all zoom out and you'll realize that's not true. The Egyptian empire lasted 3,000 years, over 10 times longer than America has even existed. That should challenge us. When our anxiety reveals that we're invested, our confidence, our hope, and our trust in the eternal existence and significance of a human kingdom, even one that we may love, because it will fade one day. It has to in God's story. That should convict us. Am I right? But more importantly, I think what these Psalms remind me is that, that history is going somewhere beyond what I see presently that it has a direction that bends towards justice in God's story. Not my justice, not my fragile sense and ego sense of right and wrong, but a justice that is driven by a God who can subdue the Tahome. A God who has promised that he will achieve his good purposes. A God who has promised that he will confront those who make war and that he will bring violence, oppression, and misery to an end. That he will make those things cease. A God that with a word has promised us that he will get that rebellion out of us because it has no place in the world that he intends. 
That's what we're to set our sights on. That's what we're to long for. That's the longing that should shape us. Whenever we feel that the home start to rise and swallow us, whenever those nations rage, we're called to let our longing for that day make us into a people of peace in this world recognizing our complicity in this world's disorder and chaos, repenting and adopting God's ways instead, to let our longing help us surrender the fates of the nations, remembering that God's promise to ordain only one kingdom as his own, the kingdom of God, which will humble, topple, and subdue every single other one, including our own. Above all, to let our longing teach us to be still and know that he is God, not us. It's so easy to look at our world's insanity and think that I must fix it. And y'all, don't get me wrong. God does call us to do our part in healing his world and how we seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. But that's not the same as thinking that I can still that's a home of this world. Who here has gone out to the sea lately and told it to stop and it listened? It ain't me (laughs) and it ain't you. Some broken things in this world are too big, complex and vast and they won't fully disappear until God upends our universe and just restores it to what it was intended to be. That's just a fact. And in such things, it's only in ceasing our anxious attempts to control that we can actually be still and know that God is God and not us. Only then can we learn to not fear though the earth gives way and the waters rise. Only then can we find the confident stillness of knowing that God alone is our refuge, strength, and ever-present help in a world that so often feels like it's off the rails. As commentator Gerald Wilson put it, life with God is not dependent on life as we know it, or even the universe as we know it. Life lived in the power of God's refuge and strength becomes internal life, not just life that hopes to be restored in some future perfect existence, but life that is not threatened by the imperfections of our world or even the dissolution of every system that we know. Because the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Amen, right? Amen. And to close, there's one last aspect of these eschatological psalms that I want to touch on very briefly. You see, as the Old Testament concludes, Israel's leadership began reading texts like this as reassurances of their own national invulnerability, that God's people could act just like all those crazy nations out there without suffering the natural consequences of injustice, greed, idolatry, violence, chaos, and war. Who thinks that went well? It didn't. That delusion got shattered when Israel rejects God's calling to peace and goes to war with this little empire called Babylon. And how did that go? Who knows the story? Real bad. Babylon levels Jerusalem, destroys the temple before deporting Israel into exile, where God's people had to undergo a dramatic identity crisis. And what we see when we study this time period is that God's people began engaging these texts with a renewed longing for God's promised peace. A 
a longing that got tied to another promise for the prophets that this figure called the Messiah, a king from David's line, would come to inaugurate the kingdom of God and bring about this ultimate renewal. This figure who, as Psalm 2 states, would break the nations with his peace, or as Psalm 10 says, or 110 says, would bring all human kingdoms under his feet. A king who arrived not as a warrior, but as a little baby in a poor family in the middle of nowhere Israel in the first century, who turned everything upside down and came to do what God promised he would, still the home and set his people free from it. Who is that king, E3? Bible, come on. Jesus, say it with me. Jesus, good gravy. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. And I close with this because next week we are beginning Advent. The four weeks leading to Christmas where we as Christians still living between God's promised future and our present chaos are called to reflect on what Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God's coming means for us in our world. And these Psalms, I think, are just a perfect bridge to that season because they remind us that in Advent, we're to reflect on this world's tragedy. And y'all, there is tragedy in this world. And we're to long for its full restoration. But also it reminds us that we do so knowing that our God our refuge, our fortress, our strength, our help. Our God came not to condemn us, but to give us renewed hope, joy, peace, and love, to save us and invite us into a kingdom that is far better than the ones we make with these fragile human hands. So as we head into worship in Advent, I just challenge you to reflect. Where do you need renewed hope, joy, peace, love in this season? Where do you need to remember that you can face the chaotic waters of this world without fear? Because our Messiah came to rescue us from the Tahom. And he is with us. He is our fortress. And he will not fail, regardless of how the nations rage. Amen? Amen. Amen.